good to have the choir back up, amen? Thank you, choir, for singing such a theologically rich song, a beautiful song that encourages our hearts to find all of our hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel in chapter 6 this morning, 2 Samuel in chapter 6, with the latest installment of the Indiana Jones movies, movie hitting the theaters recently, if you've paid attention, you've seen that over the course of the past several months, some of the older movies have been showing on TV, so if you want to catch up on them before you go see the new movie, you could have done that, and if you are a fan of Indiana Jones, then you recall the 1981 hit movie, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, in the movie, you'll recall that the Nazis were relentlessly searching for the Ark because they felt that if they found the Ark, it would help them in their military conquests. Of course, Indiana Jones was looking for the Ark, but he was looking for it for a much different reason. And in the end, you'll recall that the Nazis ultimately did possess the Ark, but were destroyed when they opened the Ark And out of the ark flies spirits and flames and bolts of energy. It's terrible graphics, it's terrible technology, but that's what happens in the movie. Of course, it's bad theology too, by the way. Uh, Of course, Indiana Jones and his companion Mary and Ravenwood are saved from death because they do not open their eyes. They keep their eyes closed and they are saved from death. You know, in our study of 1st and 2nd Samuel, you may recall the centrality of the ark as we first began reading in 1st Samuel. The ark, of course, was this wooden gold-plated box with cherubim on either side of the top of the ark. The ark represented God's presence, his power, his covenant. It was part of the tabernacle complex. It was a place where atonement was for sin was made. It was kept in the holy of holies. And on top of the ark was this mercy seat where God would meet with his people. Once a year with the high priest there making atonement. Now, the Nazis of Indiana Jones movie weren't the first to think that the ark would secure a military victory, were they? No, we saw this in 1 Samuel 4 when the Israelites were fighting against the Philistines and they thought, oh, if we just go get the ark and bring it to battle, then we're sure to win the battle. There won't be any chance for the Philistines. Let's go get the ark. And recall that they did go and get the ark, but it did not turn out well for the Israelites. In fact, the ark was stolen The ark was taken by the Philistines and placed into their temple, a temple to their god Dagon. But if you remember, in the presence of the ark, in the presence of God, their false god Dagon fell over multiple times, ultimately broke into pieces. Well, this caused the Philistines to send the ark of the covenant back to Israel. But in Beth Shemesh, 1 Samuel chapter 7 Some 70 Israelites died because they looked upon the ark against God's law. So the ark then was brought to a place called Kiriath-Jerim. And we're told back in chapter 7 that it remained there for 20 years. So here's the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant. And it is in this other city and it's there for 20 years. And that's kind of the last that we read about it. Now, in our text today, you recall that... That David has captured Jerusalem. He's making it the capital of the kingdom there. 
And his first order of business is to retrieve the ark and bring it to what is the city of David. So if you will, please stand. We're going to read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baale, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the cart, the new cart, with the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. Will you pray with me? Father, we humble ourselves. And we're praying that in our own hearts and our own minds, you would remove distractions that would keep us from focusing solely on your word and on what your spirit longs to do in our lives and our hearts today. We pray, Lord Jesus, that even in these moments, we would sense your presence. And we know that for those who are rightly connected to you, your presence means life. So bring your life-giving conviction of sin and equipping and righteousness this morning because we need it. Move in this place, Father, we pray, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, the first thing this morning is that we are to desire God's presence. We are to desire God's presence. So Baale Judah was an ancient name for Kiriath-Jerim, same place it's where the ark had resided for 20-some years. And one thing to note is that during Saul's reign as king, we don't really have much mention of the ark. So it's like the ark plays this central role in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, but then it kind of falls off the radar, and it's like, what, what happened? Where is it? Well, this shouldn't surprise us a whole lot, should it? Because we understand how King Saul ruled, how King Saul reigned. He did things according to his own plan. He did things according to his own wisdom. He did things the way he wanted to do them. So it shouldn't surprise us that he really didn't care where the Ark of God was stationed at the time, that he wasn't trying to make it a central part of his own kingdom. For some reason, Saul didn't think it was important to have the ark near to him. But David was different. See, God esteemed David as a man after his own heart. And David understood the importance of the ark of God. And as leader of God's kingdom, his first act here, one of his first things to do was to bring the ark back to Jerusalem to make it a central part of the way he would rule, the way that the kingdom would operate, the way that, that things would work in the kingdom, the worship of God being the unifying factor of the kingdom of God. It just makes sense, doesn't it? See, David longed for God's presence. That's why he brought the ark back. That's why he wanted to bring the ark back. The ark was symbolizing the presence 
of God. And David understood that to be near to God was our good. That in nearness to God, there is life and there is joy and there is hope and there is peace and there is blessing. And there's something there for us. Because I'm afraid that we sometimes go astray when it comes to the desire for God's presence in our lives. I think far too many professing Christians are a bit like Saul in the way that they live their lives. Right? Like seeking God's presence sometimes is barely even on the radar, or perhaps it's just an afterthought for some of us. This is why meditating on God's word and communing with him in prayer seems so arduous for so many people. It's just, it's tough. Listen, that's why the five-minute devotional books are so popular. You go to the Christian bookstore, if there is any left today, and what's, what's being highlighted is the five-minute devotional. Get it done in five minutes. And we love that, right? Because it fits into our busy schedules. We can just, we can work with that. Well, we can give five minutes to that, maybe. I mean, how many times have you had every desire to open the Word of God and to read the Word of God, but then when you lay your head down at night, you realize, oh, I didn't get to it today. Now, it's common. I don't say that to make anyone feel guilty in this room. It, it, it is a common issue. It can be common for any of us in this room on any given day. However, but I think, I think it points to a bigger problem, and the bigger problem is that too often we do not desire God's presence in our lives. I think that's why attending church and being involved with Christ-centered community is so fleeting these days. For too many of us, church attendance is just optional. It's something we may do if we don't have anything else to do. If we don't have anything else going on, things like sports and leisure. And friends, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with sports or anything wrong with leisure, but when those things become the priority and they keep us from gathering together, seeking the presence of the Lord together with the family of God, then it is a problem. When we can go weeks in the summer or months out of the year and put church on the back burner, pursuing other things, then friends, that shows a lack of desire for God's presence. And let me just say this. I'm not talking about merely attending a church, right? We can, anyone in this room could attend a church every single week. We could attend a church in Amarillo every single week out of the year, but that's not a picture of New Testament church membership. That's not a picture of what it means to be invested into a body of Christ, where we worship together, where we love and encourage one another, where we hold one another accountable, where we exercise spiritual gifts. That's the picture that the New Testament paints for us. That's what God desires for us, that we would be invested, that we would long to gather with the people of God, experiencing the presence of God in community. So for David, moving the ark to Jerusalem was about prioritizing God's presence. It was about prioritizing the worship of God. Now hear me, in Christ, we don't need an ark. We don't need the ark of God for that. But we do need to prioritize spiritual disciplines, both corporate disciplines and personal disciplines like gathering with the church and meditating on scripture and 
communing with God in prayer. So we need to desire God's presence, long for it. But second, this text warns us to follow God's ways. This text warns us to follow God's ways. Perhaps you notice it there in verse 3. They carried the ark of God on a new cart. They carried the ark of God on a new cart. Now, for those who are very perceptive in this room, you'll realize that this was a no-no. While a cattle-drawn cart may have been the most efficient and quickest way to move the ark from one place to another, it was not how God wanted the ark moved. In fact, in Exodus chapter 25, verses 12 through 15, we read that the ark of God had these loops or these hoops on the the four corners of the ark, and there were these special poles that were to be made that they were to, they were to kind of feed through those loops. And there would be four from the Kohathites, the, the tribe of, of the Levites from the Kohathites. And they were to carry the ark. These priests were to carry the ark on their shoulders via these poles. This is how God wanted the ark to be moved. Now we might wonder, what's all the fuss? Like, why does it matter? But that's not the point. The point is that God is holy and he determined how this was how the ark was to be moved. Well, let's continue reading verse five. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of God come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his households, right? So at David's command, the ark is to be brought to Jerusalem. Unfortunately, in the moving of the ark, God's clear instructions were not followed. Now some commentators believe, well, it had been so long since the ark had been moved, you know, these Kohathites, they just kind of forgot what they needed to do. They just, you know, they, they just, they kind of forgot the instructions that God had given them. Others speculate that, no, no, the, the, they should have known better. The Kohathites, they should have known better. They should have known how to move the ark. But what becomes clear, friends, is that ignorance over God's word is no excuse for disobedience. Ignorance over God's word is no excuse for disobedience. Nor do we have the freedom to disregard God's ways. Now some in this room may have some sympathy for Uzzah. I mean, the ark's about to fall down. All he's doing is trying to keep it from falling. Right? Like, we have some sympathy for this guy. He was only trying to keep the ark from hitting the ground, just trying to steady things. But again, that's not the point. The point is that we have a holy God who desires and demands obedience. And we are to follow his ways. 
And if his ways had been followed in, these, in this instance, then the situation that happened would not have happened, right? Uzo wouldn't have died that day. Now, it's important to realize the significance of this situation. The ark had everything to do with God's presence, the worship of God, and the reconciliation that is found through the blood of the lamb that was slayed back then ultimately pointing us to Christ. In that sense, as seminary professor and worship pastor Joe Crider points out, God determines, because this is an act of worship, how he is to be worshiped and how he is to be approached. And as we read through these verses, we see great excitement and great fanfare, right? I mean, they're playing all the instruments. It's a parade. It's a party. They're excited. Here comes the ark. It's, it's coming to Jerusalem, and, and everyone is excited. There's great fanfare, but what does this tell us? It tells us that great excitement is not an indicator of true spirituality. Great excitement is not an indicator of true spirituality or that God is pleased. Friends, what pleases God is following his ways. The Apostle John writes, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. Friends, great obedience, not Great excitement is the measure of spiritual health. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians in chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, writing to the church of Colossae, the apostle Paul says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So Paul and his companions, they're praying for these, these believers. They're praying for this new church. What are they praying? Asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So what is Paul doing? He's praying for these church members. He's praying for these believers that they would know God, that they would know his way in order that they may obey his way or walk in a way that is pleasing to him, that is worthy of him, bearing fruit and pleasing God. Friends, we need to obey. We need to follow God's ways. And we're going to see this in a few minutes, but let me say it now. God's presence does lead to great joy, and it does lead to great excitement when we are rightly connected to him. So in the aftermath of Uzzah's death, David was discouraged. In fact, the text tells us that he was afraid. He was afraid of the Lord and he asked, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now, we should understand that as how can God's presence come to me? We don't obey perfectly. We messed up. We mess up. How can the presence of God come to me? Well, friends, that's a great question. I and mean, that's maybe one of the most important questions that anyone in this room could ever ask. Clearly, the answer isn't in our own wisdom. Clearly, the answer isn't in our own power. This is going to bring about God's presence in my lives. No, the answer to how we can experience God's gracious presence is through his wisdom and through his ways. 
And God made a way for us to be in his presence. But it's only because he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus became one of us, we can be in God's presence, but only through his prescribed way, right? God's word calls us to faith and repentance. God's word calls us to turn from sin and to place our trust in Jesus' finished work of redemption. To hope in his perfect life, in his substitutionary and sacrificial death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. Friends, when Uzzah died, David had the ark taken to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And for three months it was there, the house of Obed-Edom received great blessing, according to verse 12. Well, David still longed for God's presence, so David sent again for the ark. So David's asking the question, how can the presence of God be amongst us? And the answer isn't going to be put it on a new cart and get it there however you want. And we're asking the question, how can God's presence be amongst us? And he's given us the way, and that way is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not through our attempts at obedience. Yes, our obedience is pleasing to God. And we know him so we can follow his ways. But friends, we can't obey enough. We need God's gracious initiative in our lives. We need the presence of God in our lives through the person of Jesus Christ who came to this world and who made the way, the only way. So David's in a quandary. He wants the presence of God. They've already messed up once. Now he sees this Gittite, by the way, Think about Goliath, a Gittite. He sees this house of the Gittites getting this blessing because they have the presence of God there. David wants that. So what's David going to do? Well, he's going to go read. He's going to go read. What do we have to do to get the presence of God? How do we get the ark here? So in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, it's very clear that David now is going to move the ark according to God's instruction, even with great reverence, for the Lord through sacrifice and through thanksgiving. So third, we see that David and the people rejoice in God's grace. And friends, we are to rejoice in God's grace. Let's pick up the story here in verse 14. We'll pick it up in verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. As when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animals. And David danced before the Lord with all his might and David was wearing a linen ephod. And David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Verse 16. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they went in and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. And all the people departed each to his house. So David 
and the people understood the significance of the ark of God being in Jerusalem, being in their presence. They understood the ark points to the gracious covenant that God had made with them, how the most high God had promised to be their God and they, he, he, they his people. So that we see that being rightly connected to God brings great rejoicing and it brings great joy. David is celebrating God's gracious presence, right? That's what we see here. David is celebrating the redemption that comes through God, the provision of God as symbolized in the ark. Recall that the ark contained a jar of manna. What is manna? Well, it points us to God's provision for the Israelites while they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years prior to being allowed into the promised land. Recall that it contained Aaron's rod, which represents here the priesthood and how God related to his people. And it also contained the two tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, representing God's revelation to his people. The arrival of the ark in the city of David was a momentous occasion. As David set up the kingdom in Jerusalem, the same place where hundreds of years before God had instructed Abraham to go Mount Moriah and to sacrifice his son Isaac. And you recall there that God did not make Abraham follow through with that, but provided a ram in the thicket, which was sacrificed in the place. And then a thousand years from this time when David was bringing the ark, there would be another lamb, the perfect lamb, the one true son of God who would die in Jerusalem for our sins as a substitute in our place. And we rejoice in God's gracious provision. We rejoice in the blood of Jesus, the blood that washes away our sin and secures for us the eternal presence of God as through his spirit he resides in everyone who is called upon the name of Jesus Christ. The law states that if we're going to enjoy God's presence, then we must obey it perfectly. But the problem is that none of us obey the law perfectly. None of us follow God's will and God's ways perfectly as he desires, as he demands. And just as we saw with Uzzah, the consequences of disobedience are severe. Ultimately, eternal separation from the one true and living God forever in a place of torment called hell, a place where we will suffer for our rebellion against the holy God. It is a fearful thing to be in the presence of God without an advocate, but praise God. The good news is that Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf. The one who trusts in Jesus has perfect righteousness, which our choir sang about earlier, which has been credited to us. And God judges us not based on our own deeds, but based on the finished work of Christ, his perfection. And the apostle John writes, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God on sinners. Friends, God's grace leads to joy. 
when we consider what we deserve because of our rebellion against him, but realize that we not only don't get what we deserve, but we get what we don't deserve and that we have been recipients of the grace of God and we have wholeness, we have joy, we have eternal life promised to us, this is a cause for rejoicing. Even when we face difficulties in life, even when times are difficult, we have the hope the pervading and the enduring hope that Jesus has defeated every sin and that we will follow him in the resurrection. God's grace is sufficient. And friends, this is the reason why that Paul calls believers to rejoice always and to give thanks in all circumstances in 1 Thessalonians 5. And no, it's not always easy, but we have every reason to because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Well, finally, we're to prioritize God's opinion. You heard it earlier, I, I read it earlier, not everyone was excited about this art coming back. David's wife, Michael, note that she is listed here not as David's wife, but as Saul's daughter. She wasn't happy. In fact, in, in, fact, in verse 16, the text tells us that she despised David in her heart as she believed that David's dancing and excitement and carrying on was just undignified. It was unfit for a king. Let's pick up the story here and Verse 20, and David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contentable than this, and I will base in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, the first thing to note when we read that passage is to understand that David wasn't doing anything sinful here. David wasn't running around, jumping around naked in front of everyone. His kingly garments were off, yes, but his undergarments were still on. Michael did not like this. It was undignified for a king to do this. You know, she was concerned with the outward appearance. She was concerned with the, the, the royal garments, looking the part, being a certain way. She was concerned with the outward, but David here was so excited that he was expressing his love and his worship and his commitment and his devotion as an excitement to the Lord because the presence of the Lord was there, was now with them. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis suggests that David's response to, to God's grace shows his humility and his sincerity. His was an inward worship of God expressing itself outwardly. But Michael, on the other hand, no, her concern was more with outward appearance and the opinion of others. Friends, let's desire, let's prioritize God's opinion more than the opinion of others. Let's not worry about what everyone else thinks. Let's be primarily concerned with what God thinks. See, we can learn from this. So often what we do in life is influenced by how others might receive it. 
We allow the opinions of others to at times even dictate what we'll say or what we won't say or what we do or what we won't do. And this is true even in worship. This is true even when we gather together to express our worship to God. Earlier I said that great excitement in worship does not necessarily indicate true spirituality or that God is pleased with us. But on the other hand, stoicism and a lack of joy certainly doesn't please God in worship. How is it that we who have experienced God's gracious salvation and provision can at times look and act like we are still dead in our trespasses and sins and without hope? How is it that we get so excited and expressive about certain things? Tonight, some of you have the the television on watching a game. And you will express a lot of emotions. I don't know if they're going to be good or bad emotions yet, okay? But you will express them. And it's going to seem real normal. I mean, it's just what you do when they're playing, right? It's just what you do when things are going well. And how is it that we can gather together those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ? and be joyless. Now there has to be a balance. Hear me, what matters most is what takes place in the heart. And none of us know what's taking place in your heart. If in your heart you are worshiping God, then great. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Whether you are expressive in worship or whether you are more reserved in worship, what matters is the response of your heart to God. However, I will say this. Prior to moving to one service at the beginning of the year, one of the two services, and I will not say which one, was much more expressive in worship. Much more expressive. More clapping, more raising of hands, and that's great, right? But since we've moved to one service, it seems that some of the expressiveness and excitement that characterized one of the services has gone away. It's diminished. And I wonder, is it the presence of more people in the room that is intimidating to us that keeps us from wanting to express our worship more freely? Now, hear me say this. There is little more that bugs me when someone, a worship leader, whoever else, is trying to manipulate us into doing something, right? Oh, raise your hands or get on your knees. I mean, I don't like it when people tell us what to do in worship. Hear me say that. So I want you to hear all this with a grain of salt. And I know we're Baptists, right? Our strengths revolve more around potluck fellowships than being expressive in worship. I mean, I get that. But let me say this too. If you find yourself overly concerned with what other people think when you worship the Lord, or if you find yourself standing in judgment of others when they are more expressive in worship, then you are not pleasing to the Lord. That is not pleasing to the Lord. So church, may we be a people who long for God's presence, who consistently seek to follow his 
ways. Living lives that are devoted to him. Longing to please him more than anyone. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to be people who long for your presence above everything else. Because the truth is we need your presence more than anything else. So Lord, help us not just to long for it, but to discipline ourselves to seek you. To discipline ourselves to draw near to you. Because we know, as your word tells us, that as we draw near to you, that you will be near to us. God, move in this room even now for those who are far from you, who have yet to put their hope and their trust in you. I pray that this morning the Spirit of God would convince them of the truth of the word of God and that they would believe the gospel, that there is forgiveness of sin and life only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And God, may there be rejoicing today because your spirit is at work. May we seek you. May we respond to you. In Christ's name, amen. Church, during this, during this song here as we sing, the opportunity for you to seek the Lord, to pray, to ask questions about the text, to, to talk about baptism, talk about church membership. We want to be a church that is ready to receive if you have questions, come during this song. Would you stand and sing?